Can I get a volunteer to pray? For those of you that weren't here this morning, I want to summarize a little bit what we were talking about when the session ended this morning. somebody knocking? Anyway, we were talking about the fact that uh, the Apostle John in this little letter underscores or underlines the truth that sin is not the determining force or power in the believer's life. You have all heard it said probably as I have that uh, we will always be sinners and we will always commit sin. Have you heard that? As though sin was the ruling force even in the believer's life. And uh, as though grace, God's grace, has no power to transform a person. But for John, if you read his epistle carefully, it will become apparent. For John, righteousness is the determining or ruling force in the born-again believer's life, not sin. And so he makes it clear that the atmosphere in which the born-again believer lives is the atmosphere of righteousness, not the atmosphere of sin. And this is why he says, I am writing to you so that you may not sin, chapter, one, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing to you so, you, so that you may not sin. <clears throat> In other words, truth is the antidote for sin. And you remember the words of Jesus when he says, if, whenever you see an if, that's, it introduces a condition. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what, I asked earlier. You remember? What, are we, what, what does Christ set us free from? Three powers that hinder us from living righteously. Number one, the power of sin. 
the power of the devil and the power of the self. He sets us free from those powers so that we are free for something, free for righteousness. And I, I said, uh, for those of you that were here during the morning, that I would begin this session this afternoon by telling a personal story that demonstrates what I just said. That, uh, you know, John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Way back in the late 1960s, when my wife became a Seventh-day Adventist, I was a Lutheran pastor at that time. And that event was a devastating one, not only for me personally and for our family. I, we had two small children for our marriage, but also for my, for my ministry and for my congregation. God had blessed my ministry in that church. We had a revival among the young people going on. There were over 600 members in that congregation. But what happened to me was even more devastating than all of that. I didn't understand what God was doing. I couldn't understand how after seven long years of preparation for ministry, four years of college and three of seminary, and then 10 years of successful ministry as a Lutheran pastor, God would allow this kind of a thing to happen because my ministry was falling apart. The congregation would not accept, accept us anymore with my wife, not a member of the, of the congregation, and also in another denomination. And when I spoke to my uh, bishop about it, uh, he told me that, frankly, under the circumstances, I don't think you have much of a chance to get another call. So I remember telling the Lord, why would you do this to me after seven years of preparation and 10 of successful ministry? Why would my ministry be at an end? And that was my life. I didn't know what I would do. Go and sell shoes, which is a, you know, a reputable profession. But after 15, 17 years, And I began to get angry. I became, I became very angry with my wife and very angry toward the, the Seventh-day Adventists that had influenced her. She went to the Wisconsin camp meeting and made a decision there with her Adventist friend. And she came home and wanted to tell me about the Sabbath and I wouldn't hear a word of it. 
So I was wrestling with this beast that was manifesting itself within me. Anger, hatred, and bitterness. I couldn't stand it because the Christian who, who attempts to live with that kind of sin in his heart will die spiritually and maybe even eventually physically. I had, I remember the day I had been at a hospital visiting one of my church members and driving home. I stopped at the church and I went into it. It was a very beautiful Lutheran sanctuary, stained glass windows and everything. I was there all alone and I laid down on the floor in the, in the aisle, the center aisle of the church in front of the altar on my face. And you, you remember that passage where Paul talks about groaning inwardly? The Holy Spirit groans with us. That's what I was doing. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't pray an audible prayer. But I, I, had, I, I had become so disgusted with the person that I had become with all of this anger and hatred and bitterness inside of me that I, I, re, I knew that this was a spiritual crisis moment. You see, when you become aware of sin, you have to deal with it. And this was sin within me, in spite of what was going on outwardly. So I, I lay there on the floor. I, I may have been there two hours, I don't know groaning inwardly and telling God that you have to lift this burden of sin. Not only forgive me, but take it away because I was thoroughly disgusted with the person that I had become, a pastor, a Christian, a confessing Christian, and a pastor besides, someone who preached to people every week and I told the Lord, I said, I can't go into the pulpit next Sunday and preach your word to this congregation. It would be hypocrisy. And so in my spirit, I cried out to him in confession and repentance and sorrow. Guess what he did? Can you guess? Yeah, he forgave me. But that's not all he did. He fulfilled John's verse. He not only forgave me, he cleansed me of all of that garbage. He took it away. When I got up off that floor, I was not the same guy that I was when I laid down. And when I walked out of that church, I was like walking on, on air. 
he fulfills his word. See, when, you're, when you become aware of sin, that's what the law does. Makes you aware of your sin and your guilt. To drive you to Christ. Because when you're aware of the sin, you have to deal with it. And he fulfills his word. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and forgives and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. He takes it away. And I was rejoicing. He gave me my spiritual life back. I didn't know what the next day would hold. I walked out of the sanctuary and I got into my car and I was tending to drive to our house. And I realized that, that this transaction was not finished yet. Something yet remained to be done. So I drove to the home of the Seventh-day Adventist family that had influenced my wife. And I knocked on the door and they came to the door and hesitantly, because I had been very mean, invited me in. And in the course of our brief conversation, I asked them to forgive me for my behavior, for my anger, and for my bitterness. And being born-again Christians, they did readily forgave me. But they then asked me to forgive them for all the trouble they had caused. You know, by bearing witness to what they understood to be God's truth, caused a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty for me and for my family. They asked me to, for, they asked me to forgive them. And I did. I was able to do that because they had forgiven me and because of what God had done in the sanctuary of the church. Now, I did not prostrate myself on the floor of the sanctuary in order to find God. God was already there. He is there. He's here. He's there all the time. We don't have to do that kind of stuff to find him. I prostrated myself because of the spiritual condition I was in. And I didn't know what else to do. It was, it was a desperate situation. But you see, God does what he says. He not only forgives, but he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Changes us from the inside out. It was from that moment on that I began to think, that, well, Lord, you had, do have something for me, yet I don't know what. And a few days later, he gave me that marvelous verse from Jeremiah 29, 11. Can you hear me? Is this on? Where the Lord says, I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Well, I don't have time to tell you the rest of the story, but it brought me right to this moment here. I've been a Seventh-day Adventist minister, minister for 40 years, ending up as a professor in the seminary, 
God affirmed and confirmed that event more than once in my life. Why am I telling you this? Not to entertain you with another spiritual story, but to demonstrate the fact that God changes people. And he can, even pastors, he changes, transforms from the inside out. Okay, now we can go on. I was talking about the fact, and this is what you might have missed when you left early, that um, John makes us aware of two major theological issues that are faced by the last hour church, two issues that impinge on our understanding of both the message and the mission of this church. The first one is the rejection of the biblical idea of human sin. In spite of the fact that, Paul, that John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And the other issue is the rejection of the biblical concept of victory over the power of sin. And that's what I experienced that day on the floor in that sanctuary. Victory over the power of sin. Because the Christian, the born-again believer, does not live in the atmosphere of sin. He lives in the atmosphere of righteousness. Sin is not the dominating power in the born-again believer's life, folks. If you hear anybody say that, you tell them, read 1 John. Righteousness is the dominating power and influence in the born-again Christian's life. If I had not known a gracious Lord and Savior, I would never have prostrated myself on the floor and and appealed to his mercy and grace. I remember when I was baptized into the Adventist faith at Pioneer Memorial Church at Andrews University, a dear saintly lady came up to me afterwards with tears running down her face. And she said, oh, Brother Holmes, we're so thankful that you have been saved. Well, I just thanked her, of course. But I knew Jesus many years before I was baptized the Seventh-day Adventist. So this rejection of the idea of victory over the power of sin to dominate and to control human life, in spite of the fact that John says that Jesus not only forgives but cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Both of these are major deceptions, that there is no sin and that grace does not transform the believer and give him victory over the power of sin. Those are major deceptions. The first one, that there is no sin, deceives the world, which is then led to think that it doesn't need a savior. 
See, if there's no sin, you don't need a Savior. There's nothing to be saved from. And the second one, well, anyway, let me finish this thought. You see, an atheist would accept the idea of God if God were not a moral God. It's not the idea of God that bothers the atheist. It's the idea that God is a moral God that bothers the atheist. If God had not established standards of righteousness by means of his law, and if he did not hold mankind accountable, then atheist would, could accept the idea of God. What he doesn't accept is that God holds man responsible and accountable. You see, it's not the idea of God or the existence of God that is disliked but the idea of sin that is disliked. Bertrand Russell, who was an atheist philosopher, <clears throat> made a statement that proves just what I said. He wrote a book quite a, quite a while back entitled Why I Am Not a Christian. He's a, a British philosopher, an atheist. And he, he wrote in his book, quote, the Christian God may, may exist. So in his mind, the possibility exists that there is a God whom the Christians believe in and confess. But then a little later, he says, kindness, human kindness is inhibited by the belief in sin. You see, first of all, this atheist philosopher says the idea God may exist. But the ability for human beings to be kind to one another is inhibited by belief in sin. This, the second idea that I mentioned, that is uh, the rejection of the biblical concept of victory over sin, deceives the church. The first one, that there is no sin, deceives the world. The other one, that, there is, that uh, there's no power, uh, there's no victory over the power of sin, deceives the church itself. Which then is led to be content with what Paul calls the appearance of godliness, while denying its power.
And then John, he adds to his preface in chapter one, he adds a but. He says, but if anyone does sin, we do have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So what is John telling us if we're preparing to meet the demands of the mission that we have in the last hour? John is saying, don't say that there's no such thing as sin. Admit it, confess it, receive the forgiveness and the cleansing of a faithful and a just God, and then live in the atmosphere of righteousness because, as he says in chapter 3, verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Now, Christian believers ought to know on the authority of the Word of God. As John says in chapter 5, verse 18, that everyone who has been born of God, that's the new birth, being born again, everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's what he says. I didn't say it, he said it. But, he says, he who was born of God protects him. He's talking about Jesus here now. He who was born of God, that is to say, Jesus protects the one who has been born again, and the evil one does not touch him. But if you do sin, John says, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness, the righteous, who will represent you in God's presence. So John does not hold to the mistaken idea of sinless perfection. Uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. He understands the fallenness of mankind. But he says this, we have an advocate with the Father. He doesn't say this in order to condone sin or to diminish its offense to God as a moral evil. He says it to uplift and glorify the only one who can save us from the consequences of any sin we might fall into. Because he, Jesus alone, he says, is the propitiation. The Greek meaning behind that word is to be merciful. He is, Jesus is the propitiation. He is the merciful one for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is our reconciler. 
Jesus reconciles us to God. Because while we were still sinners, Paul says, Christ died for us. Romans 5.8. Now, these are basic teachings of the New Testament. Truths, doctrines of the New Testament. And we must not lose sight of them or diminish or pervert them if we are going to be prepared to meet the demands of the last hour mission. We have to be prepared to preach what the preach and teach what the Bible actually says. Now what follows this passage in 1 John is also a basic teaching of the New Testament which must also not be lost sight of, diminished or perverted by the church of the last hour because that which distinguishes and identifies that particular church is faith in Jesus Christ as the advocate, as the propitiation for our sins, and keeping the commandments of God. And John, you remember, repeats that two times in the book of Revelation. This is how we know that we know him. If, John says, we keep his commandments. If you don't keep his commandments, you can't know that you know him. If you're keeping his commandments, you can know that you know him. Because your response, your faith response, is an obedient faith response. Not a licentious faith response. And by the way, do you know what the problem in the church is today? I'm speaking of the church at large. Now, not just the Seventh-day Adventist church. The problem in the church today is not legalism. The problem is licentiousness. I don't know anybody that's trying to work his way into heaven. You know, I'm, I'm not talking about Christians now, I'm talking about the general population. I don't know anybody out there that's trying to work their way into heaven. They don't care about heaven or about salvation or about life after death. So the problem that we're, that we're dealing with is not the problem that Luther dealt with in the 16th century, works righteousness. The problem today is licentiousness, which is a misuse of Christian freedom. They, oh, I accept Jesus, I'm free. Now I don't have to worry about how I live. He's going to take care of me, forgive me, no matter what I do or how I live. 
That's the problem today. Now the idea that the knowledge of God's love is the supreme value and that how one lives is of no importance when it comes to authenticating one's relationship to God is a deception that has no place in the theology or the lifestyle of the last hour church. The word of God makes it absolutely clear that only a life that is lived in harmony with the will of God, the word of God, is reliable evidence of a saving relationship with him. Any theology that does not hold to this New Testament truth is a lie. That's what John says. Any lifestyle that does not bear witness to this New Testament truth is false and hypocritical. So then, in order to impress it indelibly on the reader's mind, John says it again, but in a little different way. He said, by this we may be sure absolutely certain that we are in him whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he Jesus walked and how did Jesus walk obediently he was an obedient son did he wrestle with it oh yeah his human nature wrestled with that in the garden of Gethsemane you know, when he began to realize what was ahead of him, and he prayed, you know, and he had his disciples with him, and they went to sleep, you know, and he said, can't you even wait with me for just one hour? And they went to sleep, and he was sweating blood in spiritual agony. And he, you know, asked God to take this cup away from me, this need to die on the cross. But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. In other words, he was saying, I don't want this, but I'll do it if, if it's your will. To abide in Christ means to be united with him. Not just believe the doctrines about Jesus, but to be united with him personally. Listen to Jesus' own words, which were quoted by John in his gospel, in chapter 15, he says, abide in me and I in you. What does he mean by abide? And what, what does that, what does abide mean? It means to live, right? 
or to stay, to remain. He says, live in me and I live in you. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and by doing so, prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love if, it's conditional, you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You know, some people talk about obeying God's commandments as a big burden. You know, read them and say, oh, it's not a burden, friend, for the born-again believer. It's a blessing. It's the greatest joy that you and I can experience as born-again believers to obey our Heavenly Father. I mean, this is the way we, we raise our children. We raise them to be obedient children, don't we? Why? Because we know that that is the way of blessing in the family. And then John repeats this same idea. He affirms Jesus when he says in 1 John 3, verse 24, whoever keeps his, God's commandments, abides in him. Now, before I go any further, can you do that in your own strength to keep his commandments? Oh, no, of course not. That is precisely why we need Jesus living within because we can't do it alone. So he says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. What spirit? The spirit of obedience. That's the way Christ walked. You know, we have actually reached the point where obedience is becoming a bad word even in our own fellowship among us. And when you use the word obedience, say, ah, you're being legalistic. I'm sick and tired of those kind of responses. Come on, folks, let's get it straight. Now, what is the essential point here? Abiding in God, in Christ, begins by faith in his justifying grace. I knew that as a Lutheran. I preached it all the time. And is demonstrated by obedience to his divine law. I even knew that. The 
problem was my church was forgetting that. Which is why I, I felt comfortable when I finally learned what Seventh-day Adventist doctrine was. Up until then, I had just heard all of the garbage out there about us, about Seventh-day Adventists. The distortions and the untruth and the rumors. Now, the devil has a, you know, he's got a nice way of blinding, of, you know, putting the shades down in front of people's eyes so they, they can't see what we really stand for. Now, how crucial that is for the theology, for the message and the mission of the church of the last hour. It's crucial. If this church is to be prepared to meet the demands of its mission in that final hour, we have to have this right. Otherwise, we will preach a deceptive message. Faith in the righteousness of Christ separated from the practice of righteousness by the believer is not the message of the New Testament. Now, how important is all of this? Well, John says in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, he says, and now, little children, you know, after I've said all of this. And now, little children, abide in him, in Christ, so that when he appears, when he comes again, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, has been truly born again. That's what he says. Now, I still admire Martin Luther. He's still a hero of mine. So did Ellen White. She has marvelous chapters about the Reformation and about Luther in her book, The Great Controversy. And with all of this stuff that we've been talking about so far, it's no wonder that Luther wrote, quote, if, there's an if again, if we cast the law of God, and he's referring to the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, if we cast the law aside, we shall no longer retain Christ. Did you hear that? Luther said that. If we throw out the law, we will throw out Jesus with it. That's what he's saying. And Ellen White in Testimonies, Volume 1, page 286, says, Living in the last days, how important that we imitate the example 
of Christ and walk as he walked. The opinions and the wisdom of men must not guide or govern us because they always lead, she says, away from the cross. So one of the things that has impressed me about the Seventh-day Adventist church is that this church is Bible-driven. We take seriously the study of Scripture. It does bother me when Sabbath school attendance is low. People come to church to worship, but not to Sabbath school. That really bothers me because it's in Sabbath school that we study the scriptures. So don't miss any opportunity to study the Bible, but not only personally, but in, in the corporate body. Sabbath school, prayer meetings, whatever. Fellowship gatherings in homes or you open the word of God and read it and share what you hear. You know, we, we need to be serious. These are serious times we're living in. I never thought I'd live to see, in spite of the Bible prophecy, the kind of stuff that I'm seeing today kind of thinking that is going on, the kind of things I'm hearing people say. Well, John, the writer of this little letter that we're studying, is a fascinating person. He is a stirring example of one whose personality and character has been transformed by a close personal relationship with Jesus. The Gospel of Mark tells us that when Jesus appointed the 12 apostles, he called Simon Peter, which means the rock, and he called the brothers James and John sons of thunder. That's in Mark 3, verse 17. And apparently those two brothers, James and John, lived up to their nickname because John was zealous, he was ambitious. He was an opinionated debater. And he was even at times somewhat reckless impetuous and even intolerant, volatile and argumentative. But as John matured in the faith, he mellowed and he became tender-hearted. No other apostle has written about love the way John has. 
And only a tender-hearted person can write about love like that, with that kind of understanding. And that's exactly what should happen to each one of us as we grow in Christ. You know, if you have been a Christian for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, and you look back on the person that you were 30, 40 years ago, what do you see? You see any difference between that person and what you are today? There should be. You know, you and I should mature in the faith as we grow in Christ. And John became the kind of a man that we would love to have as a friend. I would, maybe that's one reason why I'm fascinated by John's writings. I would much rather have John as a personal friend than Peter. And John fits Paul's description of a mature believer as one who, speaking the truth in love, grows up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ. I think John fits that description. And so this son of thunder, as Jesus called him, became known as the apostle of love. That didn't happen overnight. It happened over a period of time. Why then, the student of the Bible asks, doesn't the apostle of love begin his letter by talking about love? Actually, he does. We just have problems seeing it there. We might not think so at first, because John knew that to love Christ is to love his word. And to love his word is to love Christ. The two cannot be separated from, from, from each other. And in his gospel, John quotes Jesus saying, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He will do it. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. That's from John 14, chapter, uh, 14th chapter, verses 23 and 24. And so instead of beginning the letter talking about love, he, he begins it by talking about walking in the light of truth and not walking in darkness and about confessing sins, about forgiveness, about being cleansed from all unrighteousness, about self-deception, keeping the commandments as evidence of knowing the Father, about walking the same way in the same way that Jesus walked. And when he wrote verses 3 through 6 of the second chapter, when he's talking about keeping 
his commandments and so on. He must have remembered the event of many years before when an angel had come and led him and Peter and the other apostles out of prison. They were put there by the high priest and by the Sanhedrin because they had been preaching the gospel and willing, winning many people to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. That's all they did. And he must have remembered the brave words of Peter and the, and the other apostles to those religious political leaders. And it's recorded in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when they said, we must obey God rather than men. What an impression that must have made on John's mind, this man who was maturing in the faith, maturing as an apostle of Christ. We must obey God rather than men. I hear those words echoing behind everything he says in his epistle about obeying the commandments. What time is this session end? Pardon? Now? Right now. Okay, we started a little late, so let me finish. And then we'll go on a 10-minute break, okay? All right? John was there. He heard those words. He was one of them. He was in prison with them. He, he heard it. He saw it. How could he forget those words spoken by the other apostles in prison? We must obey God rather than men. And if that means staying here in this prison, so be it. After they were severely beaten, the book of Acts tells us they were charged not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they were let go. And what did they do? First of all, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then, incredibly, every day in the temple, Acts 5.42, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Impressive, eh? We must obey God, not man. Okay, let's take a 10. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.